everything that we have seen with the value that the internet has brought to the world, I think an open monetary standard will do that and more. I think the next 20 years will make the last 20 years of the explosion of growth and productivity from the internet look like child's play. Welcome back to the third episode of the Dumbest Guy in the Room podcast. Thank you so much again for joining me. Today we have an awesome guest named Guy Swan. You've heard him mentioned on the pod before, he runs Bitcoin Audible, a great resource in the Bitcoin community to absorb and learn about all of the phenomenal articles and books that have been written. We cover a wide variety of topics today, including but not limited to his introduction to Bitcoin, how printing money is the theft of time, Bitcoin as a communication medium, and many other things. Thank you once again for joining, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, on the third episode of the Dumbest Guy in the Room podcast, I'm excited to announce that we have the CEO of 111 Productions, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anyone you know, the one and only Mr. Guy Swan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, man. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't be more excited to have you. A um, little bit of background for the listeners. Guy Swan is someone that has helped me tremendously. I've mentioned him on the first two podcasts. He runs his show called Bitcoin Audible, in which he reads every good piece about Bitcoin that is written. And it's an incredible way to learn while you're doing other things because reading takes so long and some of these pieces are so dense. Um, so, you know, thank you for doing that for the community and giving back. And guys also started to record audiobooks for many different authors. Um, Guy, if you could just really quickly touch on, you know, why did you get started recording shows for the Bitcoin community? Mostly it was out of uh, looking for the content myself, honestly. Um, so back in 2000 and the 2015 to 2017 era uh, of Bitcoin, uh, particularly particularly starting back in, like all the way back to 2013, I started consuming podcasts like crazy. I was a internet technician at the time. And so I did tons of driving. Like I was just hours, hours of the day, uh, riding around, just consuming content. I'd go through audiobooks. Audible became like my top subscription to anything. I was just podcasts like crazy. And the sphere for Bitcoin podcast was tiny. It was tiny. I would, I would kill it in half a day on Monday. And then I'd be looking for anything, any content for the rest of the week. But there was this increasing amount of incredible written work available um, and the Nakamoto Institute was created and they started collecting a lot of these works. There was all the cypherpunk history. There was a lot of things written back in the 90s that were still incredibly relevant to Bitcoin today, written by the cypherpunks and like kind of foundational pieces. Nick Zabo still has one of the best um, uh, monetary history pieces, I think, to date for for understanding and grasping kind of the, the underlying uh, monetary nature of Bitcoin, I think. It's called Shelling Out the Origins of Money. Uh, absolutely love that piece. And that was written ages ago. Um, 
And I didn't have time to sit down and read it all. And for legit like two or three years, I looked for those stupid dictation things like the little robots that would like read it aloud to me um, and just kept hoping that somebody else would make a podcast. I even mentioned it a whole bunch of times on like Twitter and Reddit. It's like somebody should read these in audio so that I can listen to this crap while I'm riding around. And then finally, one day I just was like sick of mentioning it to other people and waiting for somebody else to do it. And I, I literally sat down one day on the bed after I got back from work um, and talked an article into my iPhone and published it on Anchor or not Anchor. It was a, a I can't even remember the oh Podbean. I was using Podbean at the time and published it and uh, and, you know, shared it out. I got like 16 listens and I was like, hey, that's kind of cool. And I uh, got home from work the next day, did the same thing. I uh, started doing it about every other day and it kind of kept growing and people were like, oh, snap, I can get, you know, articles read to me. And then I just kind of kept enjoying it. And I kept finding like real gold, like just some amazing articles that I know I probably without the feeling of the obligation of the podcast, I might not have actually sat down and read, you know, like I would have put it in my stash of like, I'm probably going to read this. I'll, I'll save this for later, but then I wouldn't have gotten back to it. And then I found that one of the best things about the podcast was actually that I was learning a lot more than I normally would have. You know, when you read an article, it's amazing how many times, and, and you'll catch yourself if you pay attention to it, is that you'll read the first paragraph, then skim some stuff, and get distracted somewhere else, and then actually think that you read the article. You know, you'll, you'll have read maybe like, 15% of it or 20% of it, but you'll have actually just moved on to something else and left the tab open and you never actually finished the article, but you think you kind of did, you know, you got the idea of it. Um, and I, I realized that I would do that a lot and sitting down and having to record it in audio, the, the depth that you actually have to go into it, you have to reread sentences when you realize the emphasis was wrong or you didn't quite grasp what you're reading at the beginning of the paragraph or, you know, like you really have to consume it. And, uh, and it was such a huge benefit to me that I just kept doing it. And I was loving reading all the perspectives and everything from all the, all the major authors and stuff in the space. And then it just kept growing and growing until I was like, screw it. You know, like this looks like it can actually sustain and live on its own. And equipment drop, drop, dropped everything. And my wife was like, if we're going to do it, you know, now's the time. Like, let's, let's see if it works. And, you know, here we are trying to make it work. <laughs> Good for you. That's a pretty cool story. You know, how you kind of really just jumped in and slowly over, what is it gradually, then suddenly you, yeah. you really just yeah. put it all on the table and, and went for it. And, you know, it's, it's so beneficial to people out there like me, who I, I mentioned that, you know, I, I struggle with reading speed, not reading comprehension, but reading speed. And yeah. so these articles that are so dense, they just take so long to read. And then like you mentioned, there's these rabbit holes, there's a hyperlink and you click on that and then it opens another great article. And then it's got yeah. two hyperlinks in it. And then three hours go by, it's 2 a.m. You haven't read the first <laughs> article, but you're halfway through six other articles. Yeah. And you've learned a little bit, but you haven't learned as much as probably just reading one whole article. And mm -hmm. so it's a, it's a cool way that you've really given back to the community and helped people to be able to 
like you said, do other things while they are learning. So people who were in or are in your shoes who are working a job where they're driving a lot can just jump on and listen to your show. So mm. I'm so many people in the community appreciate that. And, you know, it's an awesome way that you've kind of made this career for yourself. So before we really just dive deep into Bitcoin, if you could give people a little bit of background about what you were doing as an audio technician um, before you discovered Bitcoin and um, what led you to Bitcoin in the first place? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I was originally actually a, a, a filmmaker. Um, I was I was heavy science and nerdy stuff in uh, high school, and um, uh, like probably my my big thing in high school and even even in into college was like the science Olympiad competition. Like I built robots and do. Uh, we actually went to nationals twice. Um, and. Uh, I got an award at nationals. Uh, so like that was, that was kind of the thing that I actually uh, credit to the vast majority of my education was actually that high school seemed like an absolute and utter astonishing waste of time to me out outside of that. Um, especially when I look back on like what I can practically do in my life and what I learned, it's like basically that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I always thought I was going to go the science and technical route, but I had this love of film. I just absolutely loved film. And so that's what I ended up doing in college. Um, even though it was kind of heavy towards the nerdy production camera and all that sort of side of it. Uh, and after school, I did that for a while as ran my own media production company. Um, and it was mostly like after I, like I went out to LA for, uh, for a short span, but didn't like the scene very much. Um, and didn't like what I was having to do. I was like, uh, working pretty low in a production company and barely getting on set. And it was horrifically expensive. And I just didn't see a path to actually getting anywhere with it. Um, it seemed like it was going to be a many, many year battle for very low. And I just wanted to work on my projects, you know? So, came back east and uh, started up my own company, um, which was fun for a while. And I started getting into economics. I started getting back into my nerdy stuff, into the tech stuff. I got uh, kind of consumed with BitTorrent. And I found my media business was basically just ended up being a bunch of wedding videos. Like that was the only thing you could really make money on, particularly on the East Coast and like in a small project, like production uh, setup. And that's where I started getting back into computers and stuff and doing the internet technician thing just because there was pretty good money in it. And um, and then somewhere in, like while I was living with my brother and he was uh, actually majoring in economics. So he would come home and we would kind of debate his Keynesian economics that he learned. And he would constantly see these contradictions in what they taught him. Um, there would be like you would teach something on the microeconomic level and then teach something entirely different on the macroeconomic level. And he would literally like we would sit down and we would be like, literally, these two things can't exist at the same time. You can't just say that this this thing is a principle on a small scale. But then if you repeat it a whole bunch of times and you put a whole bunch of different people together, suddenly the opposite principle is true. No, it's not. It's just harder to see. Like. Still, the stuff is the only thing there in the economy. You can't just make up numbers. There's so many times the macroeconomic theory just assumed that you could make up numbers and that this would add wealth to the economy. It was just absolutely absurd. And we were constantly fighting, um, like just debating and trying to working out why these contradictions existed. Where, what the hell is going wrong with 
the economics that he was learning and he would argue with his professors and like it apparently drove a couple of his professors really really crazy like just hated him because he would just bring it up in the middle of class you're like literally these two things can't be true at once and then they wouldn't answer him they would be like well this is what the textbook says and he's like what the, what if it's wrong and so we would like get into it and all of these things were converging at once my my kind of uh, love for narratives and telling stories, my love for BitTorrent and all the nerdy stuff, our digging and finding Austrian economic theory at the same time. And then uh, with BitTorrent and uh, the internet, I was going down this like uh, this decentralization kind of cypherpunk and privacy rabbit hole. And then in the midst of all of that kind of perfect storm, somebody sent my brother a message and said, you know, you should check out this thing called Bitcoin. And that was like, that was it. I mean, literally it was the center of all of my, of all of both of our interests at that time was, was this thing that was separate from, uh, completely separate from the government, from the state entity. And it was money back in its original form, an emergent thing in the market that simply that simply dominated that was coded to give a perfectly predictable monetary schedule um and that was always the kind of natural money like money always in society had been this thing that simply emerged it wasn't until tens of thousands of years later that it became something that was controlled by the government and it was simply because it was such a powerful thing in the market um it's it's a incredible source of power to be able to you know when everybody else has to work for money what greater power can there be than to be the only person that doesn't have to it you know if you have to work your butt off for eight hours to get a hundred dollars and i could just write a hundred dollars on a piece of paper and get all of the same amount of value that you got for working your butt off who that's the power to consume everything and never give anything back that is the ultimate power in a modern economy. Um, so the idea that that should be selectively corrupted by a select group of people is just utterly insane. And, and Bitcoin was the promise, was the hope to just remove that entirely. That, that money was again something that was everyone was equal before. Um, and we were lost. We were just lost. Um, uh, we read, we were just so, so stoked about the, like, the ideas and we were just, we were rambling and drinking. We read the white paper that night. Um, and I tell it that uh, while we were in the middle of all this debating and talking about how crazy this was and like, this is going to be, this is a huge thing because it's specifically an economic good that can't be shut down. It's like the bit torrent of money. And, uh, and then suddenly it was like, we noticed that uh, the sun was coming up. And we had gone all night. It was like eight or nine o'clock in the morning and the sun was up and we've been sitting in this back room talking about Bitcoin for like 10 hours and had not gone to sleep and was like, shit, we have things to do today. We have to go, we have to go do something. I need to, I need a nap at least. I don't, I don't even know. And we had to readjust, but we were just completely consumed basically from day one. And then from there, it was just, how do I consume as much as possible? Um, how do I find as much information? And it was so sparse then. I mean, everything was command line. Uh, then this was back in uh, 2011, um, like early 2011. And uh, so everything was a nightmare trying to use uh, all the services and 
exchanges were as shady as shady gets. Um, and, uh, we, uh, and we were completely broke. And I, I tell this story because we got our, uh, our bear market badge. We got our panic crash badge literally day one. Oh. Um, the, it was on that really early bull run that spike up to $33. We first heard about it when it was eight and it was like six days later, seven days later, it was 30 something. Um, I mean, it was, it was the, the run and we panicked and took the only savings that we had, which was almost nothing. And it happened to be the same, uh, uh, within a month of when our power was cut off cause we couldn't make our power bill. Um, and, uh, uh, so we put our only savings that we had, uh, into Bitcoin, basically at the tippy top in a panic FOMO, not even knowing what we were really investing in, right? We just had this vague ass idea of what this thing even was. Um, it was like, oh, Austrian economics, BitTorrent money. And it, I couldn't really explain at that point how it worked. You know, it was just this hopium dream that seemed fascinating to me. And so we sunk all this money in at the top and then it just started plummeting. I mean, just collapsing and and we were kind of in this point where like oh we were finally going to make this investment and it was this great decision and now there's this thing that we know about we study economics i study BitTorrent and tech it's like th these are the things we're informed about so obviously this is going to go great and uh i remember it fell all the way down to a buck 80 from 33 and like that was right around the time that our power got cut off because uh we didn't make the bill and all of our savings was just like just gone like we, we just like like we looked at what was a thousand dollars and i remember i calculated one day that it was only worth about 75 and uh and, and then like we missed bills that month and i went and i threw up I was like, oh, God, what have I done? This is the stupidest thing. And that's my my panic and that that deep feeling of being crushed in the market. Uh, basically, I said to myself, OK, so I, I don't question everything I've learned about economics. Like I'm still discovering all of this stuff. This stuff still fascinates me. I still love the tech. I still think this is a fascinating idea. Are we early or did I just buy something I have no idea about, you know? Um, and so I said, I bought in on kind of a stupid whim of just being utterly engrossed in an idea that I really couldn't explain. I'm not going to, now that I've lost everything, I'm not going to exit on the same ignorant decision. And I decided that I was just going to learn everything I could about Bitcoin. I was going to read every piece of anything that I could get my hands on. And I was going to be able to break down Bitcoin from the top to the bottom, how it works. It can it be destroyed this way. Can it be killed? Is it going to work? Um, is the is deflation bad or good? And I read every argument for and against it. And I said, when I finally make a final assessment, then I'll exit if I've made a stupid decision. And what, 10 years later, I've, my conviction has never been stronger. Uh, and I'm, I've never been more convinced that this is the best thing and desperately needed for society as a whole. I think a global open monetary standard 
um, is the absolute best thing. And it solves the, it solves one of the absolute core and most, just most destructive problems that we have today is the centralized cor corruption of money and massive systemic problems. So many systemic problems come from that. And the ability to have an open monetary standard, I think will be as or more beneficial than the same thing that we had when we went to an open communication standard, when we went to the internet. Everything that we have seen with the value that the internet has brought to the world, I think an open monetary standard will do that and more. I think the next 20 years will make the last 20 years of the explosion of growth and productivity from the internet look like child's play. So that's the it's quite it's a long rant on how the hell I found my way towards Bitcoin. And what's funny is I, there was a point when like I went all nerdy and tech stuff that I had to come to terms with the fact that I didn't consider myself a filmmaker anymore because that's what I had been for a long time. Right. Like that was. I was media. I like to tell stories. I wanted to produce. Uh, I wanted to make films. And then at some point I walked away from that and said, I'm not a filmmaker anymore. And it was a little bit hard to deal with that because like I was going to be a Linux admin. I wanted to be an internet technician. I wanted to really go down the tech rabbit hole. And I thought about really going to learn to code rather than the stupid little scripts and Python that I did. And now it's kind of funny. I'm back to owning a production company. Uh, running a podcast, uh, telling stories and making videos and stuff again. I've kind of gone all the way back around. I was like, shit, I need to get back into, I'm doing film production now. Like now I'm trying to do Bitcoin videos and documentaries and stuff. So I'm full, full circle here back to where I started, I feel like. Man, that was an epic rant. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, th that was, what a way to test your conviction right off the jump. You you Jesus, you put man. you put all your chips on the table, and the table swallowed them whole, and <laughs> then you had to reevaluate everything that you knew. It, yeah. it takes a lot of courage to not panic sell in that moment, but also now looking at the current climate of Bitcoin, it makes a fifty percent drawdown. Oh yeah, like I could not care less. A, I could not care less. <laughs> when you get hit with a ninety-two percent drawdown in your first week. Yeah, I think of 50% and still, you know, well above the all time, the previous all time yeah. high from a few years ago. I, th I think, I think that really is, is easier to stomach nowadays, I could imagine. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm always buying on these dips. And it, it's so funny that people always have the frame of reference as to what the space looked like and felt like and kind of the conviction, I think, is all relative. So when when people get in, they they'll particularly on like these hype bubbles or like when emotion is high and everybody's like bullish and stuff. And then suddenly their first bear market feels awful. Like it's there's panic because in relation in relation to when they got in, it feels like desperation. It feels like the worst thing that's ever happened. Whereas if you look at like the the fundamentals or if you look at the space or whatever like in relation to when i first got in it's it's not even like night and day it's it's like it's like god i don't even it's like the void versus being in the middle of a city you know it just it just doesn't look anything like it so people who think it's going to go to zero today 
just I, I can't help but giggle. It, it just it, it's so funny to me to think that the industry is so massive, is so widespread. The per, the persona, the, the the mentality around Bitcoin could not be is are light years, light years away from it was just seven or eight years ago. I never had a conversation in which I did not, if I brought up Bitcoin, the conversation was always, was always them simply giving me that look you give like a three-legged dog, like that, oh, you pathetic, stupid child. You have bought this internet money, these internet magic tokens, and you are going to lose everything. And you are very excited about this. I am so, so sorry for you, you dumb human being. Like that was the, that was the response universally. And that's if they heard about it. If they didn't, it was worse. There was, there was never, there was never assumption that this was actually useful or valuable. Now people just come to me about it. I don't have that problem anymore. I mean, people will still, there are still people who think Bitcoin is a joke, but the the difference, the difference isn't even comparable. It just, it's, it's, it's so, like I said, just light years ahead of what it was then. Going back five years to now, it, it just, it just doesn't look anything like it did. Um, yeah. Like there's, it, I have no concerns. I just have no concerns. Yeah, it's pretty crazy because like when you got in, it was an extremely risky investment. There's no debating that it was risky. And through the years, it still has been. But then over the past year and couple years, as more of the framework has been built around Bitcoin and more adoption has been coming to Bitcoin, it has really become a risk off asset. And in yeah. my opinion, I tweeted the other day, um, when it crashed below 35,000, I said, this is the best risk adjusted investment opportunity of our lifetime. Yeah. In my opinion, the asymmetry, that might, that the asymmetry been... is, it's not even an opinion. It's not even an opinion. If you, if you take the, the, the risk adjusted, the risk versus return and just lay out its history, um, it's got one of the, uh, the, oh God, what's the ratio? Stock to, uh, Sharp, yes, sharp the sharp A or sharp ratio. Um, uh, it's it's got the highest return versus potential downside on, on any span of time as just about anything else. Um, and I think that's what everybody is misunderstanding or miscalculating is the potential risk of holding Bitcoin. Um, when you're talking about like and you know, maybe we're talking about like custodial risk or something like that. But in the context of the downside of Bitcoin's value, the asymmetry is there's there's nothing that compares to it. Um, it's got such a powerful upside with limited downside, given any span of time, any significant span of time, uh, as basically any other asset right now. And it's fully legitimized. It's fully legitimized. Like there's going to be an ETF soon. Um, almost every major bank has started to make a play into the industry. Um, huge hedge funds, insurance companies, um, endowments, pensions. Uh, everybody is starting to accumulate. Major institutional buyers are starting to see this as a real asset. Uh, even, even where it's being quote unquote attacked, mining is becoming a legitimate regulatory industry with its own explicit rules and regulations um like and, and every single way um even in those things that perceive it as something to press press against 
it's becoming a legitimate part of the global infrastructure. Um, and I think that's just the beginning before we, we really start to realize the value of Bitcoin as a network. We're still, we're still really becoming mature as Bitcoin the asset. And we've barely touched on Bitcoin, the network and its usefulness um, when it becomes truly a communication medium across the globe. Um, and I think that's where this next phase is. Uh, I, think, I think we have such awesome potential in the next three to five years in particular. Um, there won't be, like I said, there's, there's nothing that has quite that asymmetry. Um, I think the upside is, is remarkable in comparison. And this 50% drawdown is nothing. This is just froth. Um, it, we've been here so, so, so many times before. Um, I, I just stack again and make a podcast. I just, I just couldn't care less. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's, it's pretty... The, the Bitcoin network and the communication medium is very exciting into the future. Um, before we jump into that side of things and where we see it going... Can we rewind a few thousand years really quick and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> use your expertise as the uh, on the history of money and what we've seen throughout history with different monies in different societies and how hard money always wins out in time and start to look at why we equate that with Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and this is something money at the end of the day is a is whatever ends up being the most valued good and the most quote unquote liquid good which means it's the most available for trade in any market and there are a handful of characteristics which it must have in in order for that to be the case in order for it to end up fulfilling that role and one of those absolutely critical things is scarcity. It must be hard to create more of. And if you think about this, you can think about this in the context of basically anything. Like let's say TVs start to increase in value and people start to use them in trade for some reason. Uh, well, as they increase in value, what's going to happen? The margin on producing more of it is going to increase. So the, the profit in making TVs is going to continue to go up with linearly with the amount of value that uh, the TV is actually actually calls for in the market. So if now you can have 100% profit on making TVs, what happens to everybody who's making smartphones? What happens to everybody who's got a plant making GPUs? They all shut it down. They switch it over to making TVs. Everybody is going to make TVs until the, the profit margin goes back down to zero. So as soon as TVs start to accumulate this premium on being traded, the supply will skyrocket until it's gone. Now, what happens if its supply cannot change? Its value will continue to accrue. That's the only thing that can happen. If it is a provably scarce asset, its value will continually accrue until it becomes saturated in that market. And the the feedback loop of that value increasing is that it becomes more and more desirable in exchange for all of the goods where the supply can change, where the, where the value does decrease. The whole point of an economy, the whole point of money as a good in the economy is that it is the one thing that will preserve the value we have already created. 
everything else degrades. We have plenty of stuff that loses value over time. Our house rots and slow and has all these huge maintenance costs. Our food rots. It doesn't last very long. It all expires. Our cars degrade and rust. Everything loses value over time. The good that becomes money is the one that holds its value the best because we've already taken the risk. We've already created the value in the past. The idea is that we want to translate it into the future so that we don't have to live forever hand to mouth. We can actually, we can actually create society over long spans of time and keep the value I created three weeks ago and then redeem it from somebody else three weeks later. It's so that it stays crystallized because otherwise I need to dump my value into a consumable as quickly as possible. And any long-term plans, forget it. Forget it. I don't want to make long-term plans. I want to get rid of my value as soon as possible. I want to consume everything. And we don't want to accumulate capital. We don't want the economy to get wealth, like everybody to get collectively wealthier. We just want to get rid of everything as fast as possible because it all expires. Um, and it's like, it's like saying that to say that like we would be better off with the money that degrades in value over time is like saying that if our infrastructure broke down faster, if our bridges collapsed sooner, everything would be better. Like how, how would that make us better? We want things to sus be sustained. We want to be able to build on top of society, not keep rebuilding society. That is a money that keeps its value. The ability to build on top of the value that we already created a money that loses value, goods that only rot and degrade over time is the stuff we have to replace. Why do we want to keep replacing things that we already made? We don't want that. We want things to sustain. And so the goods in the economy that best do that ends up becoming what we now refer to as money. Uh, one of the things that did this best uh, for thousands of years actually was salt. A, a preservative, no less. Um, like that's one of the major major things it was used to do was preserve other things. That's where so many of uh, our terms for money come from, worth their weight in salt. Uh, salary. Salary was literally the term for the rations of salt that were given to Roman soldiers. That's where the word comes from. Uh, and because it was a highly desirable and reusable good, um, and it was used for so many things. It was considered one of the one of the highest quality things to be quote unquote paid in. It was one of the best goods on the market, and it was pretty hard to acquire. Um, you, it was salt was very valuable, and even if it price its price increased, it wasn't very easy to get more of. But then you have all these other examples of. There's been tons and tons of different things that have been used in separate economies or separate societies. Um, and it all depends. They all have those same basic characteristics. They end up being difficult enough to create that their value can increase to become enough to become the money of that culture or that society without people, without that culture or society being able to produce a ton more of it. That is one of the most important uh, Nick Zabo calls this unforgeable costliness. And what's funny is that Bitcoin works on a quote-unquote proof-of-work system. And what's funny about that 
is that that's actually one of the best analogies for what money is. Money is proof of work. Money is proof that I did something in the past that's worth this amount of value. You know, if somebody has saved a million dollars, like let's say, uh, you know, an internet technician, I was an internet technician, right? What I am doing as an internet technician is I'm going around and uh, hooking up people, other, uh, other people up to the internet to give them value. I'm keeping, I'm keeping it working. I'm troubleshooting problems. I'm producing value and real goods and real services for other people. When I have money in exchange for that, money is my promise that I will get that value back. If I have a million dollars in savings, it explicitly means of all the services, goods, and resources, and production in the economy, I have put a million dollars worth of value into that pool of resources, and I've taken absolutely nothing out. I have been given nothing but promises that I can redeem that same amount later. To steal that from me is literally to make me a slave for everybody else's internet service. I haven't asked for anything back yet. All I did was get money. Like I've, I've produced like for sandwiches, I produced a million sandwiches and I haven't eaten anything yet. Like that's, that's me producing for society. Money is the proof that I did that. Someone being able to come in and counterfeit a million dollars is the ability to eat a million sandwiches without ever fucking making one. That you don't have to give anybody sandwiches. You're just going to eat everybody else's. So everybody else will starve and you'll be fat and you'll say it's for the good of society because everybody needs money. No, money is a promise. Money is simply a promise of society to give people back what they put in. If you corrupt money, you corrupt value, you corrupt the ability to measure who is producing what and where, you corrupt everything about society and the economy. It is an absolutely horrible thing to do, and it is incredibly destructive. It's exactly how we've gotten into this mountain of trillions of dollars in debts. It's how we've created a society where, in the most absurd way, just think about the ridiculousness of the fact that everyone is in debt to the banks. Banks don't do anything. Banks don't produce things. The people who actually build the houses, make the sandwiches, build the cars, uh, invent the engines, um, repair the roads, those are the people who are producing society. Those are the people who are making things into the economy. The banks are supposed to be the ones that are keeping it safe and making it accessible to everybody else. How is it that on net, everybody in the economy is in debt to the banks? Everybody who produced society is in debt to the people who are supposed to just be keeping tally of who did what. It is specifically because of how our monetary system works. They are allowed to create money out of thin air and issue it as debt. If you have a car and... I, uh, oh, excuse me, let's say you don't have a car, you want to buy a car. If I am broke, I have no money whatsoever, but I have the legal authority to create $40,000 out of thin air and loan it to you. And now you own it back to me in interest. I didn't give you something. You gave me something. And this is one of the most awful lies of our society is that to loan someone money is to give them something. No, it is giving myself something. I have given myself $40,000.
by lending, lending it to you. I had nothing before. Now I have $40,000 and you owe your car to me. You buy a car and it's like, okay, you get to drive around your car, but I now have a salary from you. I own your car until you pay it off. And at the end of, the, at the end of that loan period, I have $40,000 plus all of the interests. And what did I do? What did I do? Did I build a car? No, I didn't build a car. Did I earn the money from somewhere else? Nope, didn't do that. I created it out of thin air and I gave myself both an ongoing salary based off your work and gave myself the original $40,000 that you had to pay back to me. I have got the golden freaking ticket. I can do whatever the hell I want and I can just issue money, give it to other people. They will thank me and I will get paid forever for doing absolutely nothing. That is our banking system. That is a gross gross simplification but underlying that is a massive amount of what our banking and monetary system does it creates money into existence as debt and it makes everybody running on a hamster wheel to produce for the monetary and banking authorities so nobody can ever get ahead everybody's everybody's just racing as fast as they can to stay in the same place it's like we're all on a all on a treadmill running the wrong way and all we have to sprint at full blast just to stay right where we are. That is a destruction of the very purpose that money exists. It's, it's the one person in the neighborhood. There's a reason money doesn't grow on trees. There is a reason money doesn't grow on trees. Because if it did, we would call them leaves. We would rake them up in piles and we would burn them. They would be worthless. They would be as worthless as leaves because they're not scarce. They prove nothing. They are a horrible promise. Somebody can just, rather than being a proof of somebody else's past work, they're just the proof that somebody has a tree in their yard. It destroys the very function of money. And I probably have kind of like, I've gotten way off track here with kind of the original question, but uh, uh, maybe, maybe, Maybe allocate me towards uh, towards one topic here. I've kind of just no, ranted that, that about was, money. That was really good. Don't don't worry about it because you did tie it back to a lot of things that we're looking at. And one thing I just want to talk about for people who don't know this is when you go to the bank to get a loan for a house or a car, that money that they give you is not money that an investor has allocated $500,000 that he wants a certain amount of interest back over 30 years for a home loan. Exactly. That money is money that they create. So just like guys said, it is a little bit of a simplification, but at the end of the day, that money comes from thin air and is not actually money that has been created via someone's time and investment in their effort over time. Now, something that you said in there a couple times and you touched on is time theft and Money is supposed to preserve the value that we have created. Yeah. If you could go a little bit, and then you also touched on how the creation of money is a form of slavery. So if you could go in a little deeper on why that is and how the creation of money is a theft of time, which purports slavery. And I think a pretty good example of maybe how we could look at this would be like the agri beads and what that did to the continent of Africa in, you know, with the European s slave trade. 
Got you. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's actually a really great piece. Um, I'm sure you've read it and or listened to it. Uh, Robert Breedlove on Masters. Probably listened. Masters and Slaves of Money. Um, uh, really brilliant piece. Um, and it actually shows what happens. It's another great um, example in history of what happens when a hard money is introduced into, into a soft money environment. So, and by hard money versus soft money, I mean soft money as one that's easy to create more of. So in our example earlier, TVs would have been a very soft money um, because as soon as they started to develop a monetary premium and actually be used as money, well, then it's rather than actually having to work to earn TVs, um, from other people at the price of, you know, 200% what it takes to create them, it's cheaper to just produce more of the TVs. Um, so rather than allocating other value, everybody adjusts to start making the quote unquote money, the TVs, until the price is back down to actually having the, the economy back in balance. So in the context of like paper money or agribeads or something, agribeads, something that doesn't take a whole lot to create that you can create more of in great supply in Africa and with the technology uh, that those civilizations had and the deep culture that they had at the time, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to create these glass beads that were used as money. So uh, they actually worked as a hard money with the technology available at the time and because they had such cultural significance. And some of them even had um, kind of like a, uh, this was not in Africa, but like in the Kula ring and stuff, uh, these, these other like uh, jewelry pieces and these collectibles or whatever also had their own historical and uh, generational and familials, familial value, value and significance. So that wasn't recreatable. You couldn't just make more of them and then reproduce that value. They had their own history that um, contributed to their value. Um, but back to the, the example of the agribeads, when the British and the, the quote-unquote Western world started finally integrating and going to the African continent and started spreading across the, um, uh, the Atlantic, they would introduce these societies and they would see these agribeads, these glass beads that were very hard for that society and that culture to produce. But for Britain, for, for, for the British, and we can produce these a lot. We can produce these very, very quickly and very, very cheaply. So the value of money, it was soft money for the Western world, and it was hard money for uh, the African continent and for the African technology at the time. So what they would do is they would mass produce these beads. And the, the Africans not understanding this dynamic at all, um, and I don't even think the British really understanding it to any great degree from concept of like money. They were just like, oh, these guys will just sell us all of their stuff for these beads. We can produce these beads really, really quickly, and really, really cheaply. Let's go produce more of them. So they would produce these these agri beads in mass um, back in uh, uh, back in Britain. And then they would ship down and they would buy they would buy uh, the slaves being traded between tribes and countries in the area um, who were caught during war. A lot of the a lot of the slaves were war slaves, or um, uh, and some would even sell themselves into slavery for the benefit of their families or uh, friends or whatever or their their culture themselves, um, uh, for the, their community. I mean, and uh, and suddenly it looked as if these 
British who were these massively wealthy people who came in with all these this wealth glass beads, which was not hard for them to create at all. Um, suddenly they were able to just consume all of the resources and even the very people of the continent because they were able to create the money. And it took, I think it was really kind of over 80 years or a hundred years before it just absolutely decimated the money. Um, so kind of in like the last hundred to 150 years, with uh, the phenomenon we have today of fiat money, of governments printing paper money, um, which was actually a representation of real goods um, in the past. Um, gold, obviously gold and silver. Um, uh, now we kind of have the conditions or the, the characteristics that lead to hyperinflation. Because when the trust of the money breaks down, when it when you find out that you can create more of it, it's so easy to create a piece of paper with 100 written on it that its value can plummet to zero in a matter of a year, in a matter of two years. Like it's such a short time span, and that's what we refer to as hyperinflation. Whereas even something that's as soft money as like glass beads, it still took in that context because you had to you had to get on a ship with a whole bunch of people. You had to go produce a ton of them in Britain and you had to fill up a ship full of them. You had to come back and then you would buy slaves and uh, 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 resources and everything from the African continent. This time span, it still took to reach market for the new for the new money supply to reach the market still meant it took 80 to 100 years to completely wipe it out. But in, in the end, that's what happened. And it didn't matter how strong the culture was. It didn't matter how much they uh, the local community valued those agri beads. They were simply not good money anymore. They were they were destroyed by the new technology that was able to produce them at a higher rate um, and for vastly cheaper. And inevitably, they reached their equilibrium price, which was essentially nothing. Um, and in doing so, it it obliterated the continent of all of its resources because now everybody was thinking that this money was still a promise of other value created and it, it wasn't anymore. It, it did. They just did not know. So they were giving up. They were fulfilling the promise without ever getting anything back. The Britons, the, the British were not coming in and contributing value to the economy. They were contributing more money supply. And that's what we have. That's what we have institutionalized today is central banks do not contribute anything to the economy. All they do is suck massive amounts of resources out of the economy in the name of keeping nominal values up, just making sure the points level out. And it's like, it's like you know having a house budget that shows that we're negative two thousand um, dollars at the end of the month, and we just like erase it and plus like plus ten. We just we just add two thousand points to the house budget. It doesn't matter that we had to sell half of our stuff and that we the house is you know degraded. We can't pay for maintenance or anything. As long as we just erase the fact that we have a big negative at the end of the month and we just make it a positive. Oh, everything's great. Everything's great. It's just pushing under the rug. It's they. It's literally institutionalized cooking the books to make it appear as if we've created more stuff when we haven't. We clearly have not. We are destroying a trillion dollars of resources every year. And of course, we're getting poorer. Of course, things are getting worse. Of course, we're struggling more. Labor shortages and supply shortages. It's hard to get gas. Who knew? You know, like, uh, no, no crap. Like, that's that's what happens 
when you decide to crowd out the actual production of goods and resources with the production of paper that says we have resources. You can't, you can't write on a piece of paper that says we have lots of stuff. It's okay. And think that that's going to feed somebody. That's what we are doing. Um, and history has proved this over and over and over again. It's the same story of the rye stones. The uh, uh, captain, um, oh God, I think it was the Spanish. I think it was the Spanish that um, went to the islands of Yap. And they started uh, going off because uh, the rye stones were a money that were these large limestone rings that were incredibly like, like wheels, basically. Um, they were huge. They were heavy. Uh, the limestone wasn't even native to the island. So again, for that society, for that culture, it was an incredibly difficult money to create more of. It was incredibly scarce. And so they could easily trade it as money and they wouldn't even move. The, the money would just sit there. Like there would just be, like there was a rye stone at the top of the hill and it was like guy owned it. And then guy trades it to bill. The, the rye stone didn't changed hands it didn't move anywhere it was still the one at the top of the hill it's just bill owns it instead of guy like it was it was just a public ledger you just let everybody in the community know bill now owns that rye stone guys everybody write that mess down like that was the money um and so it wasn't even technically portable it was perfectly portable because it was virtual like the right the purpose of the rye stone was just to prove that it was scarce that you couldn't create it arbitrarily um and uh and what happens Western world comes in, realizes we can make these for way cheaper than uh, uh, than this society can because we have these much more advanced ships and we can we can go over to that other island and make get lots of limestone and come back and uh, fashion these things and introduce these into circulation and a money rye stones that worked for five centuries, five centuries a relatively perfectly sound monetary good worked in this isolated civilization and culture. And then as soon as the technology uh, to make it a soft money was introduced, it collapsed and it went away. Um, same story over and over and over. There's so many examples of history. Hard money is necessary to build a long-term sustainable society. Debts and soft money will destroy it. Never in the history of the world has a society been destroyed because it had too much savings. Never. Not once. Almost every single period in human history, almost every society that has ever collapsed, collapsed from too much debt and from soft money. One or the other was almost always present. And it's amazing that we have this fallacy that debts are good for the economy and savings is bad. That's a recipe for disaster. And I think we're, I think we're seeing what that looks like. This is, the, this is the end game of what we built in the 70s. Say so WTF happened in 1971.com. Uh, definitely, definitely recommend that to anybody who wants kind of a big picture of some trends that have happened since we have decided to fully and completely abandon the idea of austerity and sound money and embraced debt as uh, productive for the economy which it is not. It's just stealing from my future so that I can consume something cheaply and frivolously today. Yeah, uh, man, all that is really great info that you laid out right there. And one thing I really want to touch on and highlight is how when you can print money for free, it steals time. And so yeah, 
every $1 trillion that is printed into the environment these days, which happens basically every couple of weeks or months now, $1 trillion. It's kind of a we, monthly thing. Yeah. Yeah. If we <laughs> average $25 as the hourly pay, that is 40 billion hours of stolen time. Mm-hmm. That is so many more hours significantly than any individual work in their lifetime that it's hard to comprehend how big $1 trillion truly is. And this money keeps- You can't imagine it. You can't imagine. It's just a stupid number. Like it's, it's just been hidden behind. It's a million, a million times. Like it's hidden behind an incomprehensible nominal value. So like we've just become numb to the fact that the government is government and central bank is literally in the process of consuming all of our resources um, in the name of, in the name of keeping us what I don't, I don't even know. Like, it's just, it's consuming everything that we do. Yeah. Um, and so like 1 billion is hard to fathom itself. 1 trillion is nearly impossible. One like visualization that I like to do for this is start with a million because that's a little bit more comprehensible. 1 million seconds is 11 days. One billion seconds is about 33 years. Now, one trillion seconds is 33,000 years. Yeah. So as you increase to, you need 1,000 billion to get to one trillion. Mm -hmm. These numbers that they're printing are completely unsustainable and they don't even have any meaning anymore. And so that's what Guy is talking about as money is introduced into the environment, how it degrades the usefulness of all the money and time that people have put into the effort to create their own money. Now the money that you worked for and you have your proof of work for doesn't preserve anything because it's worth less. And so you just, you just briefly touched on at the end in 1971, we went off the gold standard. Nixon took us off the gold standard and we, officially entered a period of fiat money in the United States and pretty much the world because everyone else was pegged off of the United States dollar. So at that moment, the dollar turns into debt rather than having something that's backing Mm -hmm. it. Every dollar is now debt. What have we seen over the last 50 years happen to the US dollar and as it has become solely debt and not have any backing what have we seen to happen to the economy because of that well it's it basically it has has numerous effects um uh, like go probably probably a good thing is ask your grandparents how much they put down on their first house um uh ask you know how much did it cost to get a Coke and go to a movie. Um, Like that's the value loss of the money. We have become an incredibly debt centered economy. We have, it's, uh, there's something referred to as time preference, uh, which is basically our, our frame of reference for how long or short, uh, how long amount of time or how short of amount of time we are willing to uh, sacrifice or or use in order to get a return. And a high time preference society is an instant gratification society. 
And that is what the degradation of our money creates, is it creates this constant frivolous. I mean, think about how much more, how much more intelligently or carefully you would spend money if you were spending it after you earned it. If you save up $10,000 over a period of a year by, you know, skipping meals, by not going on that vacation when you wanted to go on that vacation, by, uh, you know, not buying that thing at the checkout aisle and just making sure you save that little bit of money. And suddenly you have made the sacrifice for a year. You have put all of that time in. You have put in that effort. You have felt that sacrifice for 365 days. How carefully do you spend that $10,000? Do you go out and buy lottery tickets? No. You know what that's worth. You fought for that value. Now imagine going out and getting a $10,000 loan like that. Does the same, does, does that person spend that $10,000 with the same carefulness? Do they spend it with the same thought, understanding what it's worth? Think about a kid coming out of high school. Do they spend $50,000 in a loan on college, having even the slightest clue what $50,000 actually means? What else they could spend that $50,000 on? And what it means to pay off a student loan for the next 40 years. The value of money is destroyed when you are able to issue it or create it as debt. And we become an incredibly high time preference society. 0% down, 0% APR for 12 months, for 32 months, whatever it is. Buy now, don't think about it, get it quickly. And, uh, and if it, if it doesn't serve you now, it's not worth it. Um, you 0% down 0% APR for 32 months is, was a joke. Go back 50 years. No, absolutely not. You couldn't do that. Who in the world is going to give you $50,000 that they worked their butts off for, for no return at all. Nobody's going to do that. That's like renting somebody your car for free for three years at no cost. Who's going to do that? Are you going to rent somebody your car? Are you going to loan out your car for three years to somebody for free? No. No, because you actually had to work for that car. It is only because nobody had to work for that money that that deal is possible. And it completely changes how we think about creating value, how we think about the long term. And it, and, and it absolutely fosters and breeds this consumerist culture I want cheap crap. I want it now. I'll pay it off later. Give it to me. And because there's all this flood of new money coming into the, into the society and the people who are most frivolous, who are quickest to take out those loans and buy stuff are now the leaders. They're now the leaders in the economy because they're the ones that are going to get the debt money before the people who are saving, right? The people who are saving don't want to do that. They're not going to go take out a loan. It's going to explicitly be the frivolous um, uh, the cheap, quick, instant gratification culture that is going to go get that new money. So that's what the economy now has to shift to please. Now they're going to have to go please everybody who does pick up a candy bar at the checkout aisle, who does just get another credit card when their other credit card gets maxed out, who does just buy a car on 0% down, 0% APR, even though they can't really afford the, even the car payment um, every month. But we'll see. We'll we'll. I worry about that in three months. My future self will pay that debt. Um, and so the entire society is now geared rather than 
pleasing and uh, satisfying the savers and the producers of society. They're uh, trying to please and satisfy the debtors, the spenders, the, the frivolous members of society, and everything changes. And, and this, this happens at every single, uh, Ron Paul had a really great uh, frame of reference for this, is that money is one half of every transaction ever in the economy. It is present and in front of us at all times. Its value, the changes and how we relate to money affect everything, even if it is absolutely tiny. If it's a subtle push in one direction, it's a subtle push 10 times a day, every day, from the day we start using money to the day we die. That changes people, who they are, what they think about things, how they relate to value, how they relate to their past work, how they relate to debt. And we have moved from a society that had high savings, that was um, focused on productivity, and not as if it was perfect. We kind of had a crappy monetary standard even back in the 60s and 70s, but it was vastly superior to all the problems and the fundamental issues we have now. Um, but we've gone from a high savings, low prices society to an insanely high debt, high prices society. And we have become a consumerist, buy now, think about it later culture. And we are in debt up to our eyeballs. We are everybody's, everybody's credit card is maxed out. Everybody's mortgaged the next 30 years of their life. And there's no room left. And the only, the only way out is to print money to make all of the debt, to bail out all the debtors at the expense of the savers. You know, if somebody prints, somebody saves, go back to the sandwiches example, if somebody saves a million dollars by producing a million sandwiches. And what they want is to be able to afford the next million sandwiches for them to eat, right? Like they, they produced it into the economy so that they can then request it later. Society has promised we owe you these sandwiches because you gave them to us. We'll give it back to you later. If you print a million dollars, it's to take up all those and whoever you give it to, whether it be your big bank buddies or your corporate cronies or your subsidies or your military, um, uh, your military expenditure, whatever the heck it is, they are the ones that then get all of the sandwiches that you made. And to de devalue that million dollars is to revoke that promise. It's to say, yes, you are going to make sandwiches for us, and that's it. You're not going to get them back. You're not going to do anything. Like You are just going to make sandwiches for us. You are going to be our slave. We are going to steal all of the past that you have produced for yourself in order to get your value, and to, in order to secure your family, to secure your future, and to better your life, and to shape your world as you see fit per your values, per your decisions, per, per what your trade-offs explicitly mean to you and your life and your family and the people you love and your friends. We are going to take that from you and it is instead going to instill the world with our vision. We are going to consume those resources. We are going to shape the world per what we think. And to do that for a trillion dollars is to reshape the world. Is to, is to make it as if those people don't exist in the economy. You know, if uh, Apple creates a garbage product and they usually have, let's say they usually sell 20 million of these products every time they get a new iteration and suddenly they only sell 1 million of them. Well, that's 19 million people 
explicitly making the decision that their value that they have produced in the past is not worth this product. That this good is not, is not successful. This good does not solve my problem. I have no reason for this thing. Now imagine the government subsidizes them for that other 19 million. It's, it's, as, it's as if those 19 million people, their decisions are meaningless. They don't exist in the market. They have no influence in the market. They do not change how Apple produces their products. They are completely and 100% powerless and meaningless. All of their decisions, all of their trade-offs, all of their hard works that enabled them to make that decision prevent Apple from getting those resources has been deleted. They might as well just not be there. They might as well not exist in the economy at all because the government has said, well, we're just going to print all of this money and we're going to support our vision of the world. We're going to support what we think is valuable by removing all of your influence over the economy. The government does that all the time. That is literally what the government is doing. It is saying all of our skin in the games, uh, our skin in the game, hard work, our decisions and trade-offs in our lives, the blood, sweat, and tears that have built this society, all of those decisions are meaningless and our political crap and our bickering and our idiocy and our subsidies and our corporate cronies and our central bank policy and all the equities that we want to own, that is how the world is going to be shaped. And we have the ability to print as many of these stupid, useless tokens as possible to reshape the world in our vision and all of your hard work won't mean a thing. That's the state of the corruption of money. And we are doing that at a massive, massive scale. Uh, and it's a travesty. It's an absolute travesty. It's the source of the greatest inequality in this country. It's the source of uh, all of our systemic, the bulk of our systemic economic problems. It's the source of uh, the overwhelming majority of our consumerism is why it continues to accelerate and feed back on itself. Um, it is the reason we have no savings and that we can't even weather a couple of, we can't weather the slightest storm and everything, every tiny thing that happens that goes wrong, it's, it necessitates that everything be perfect and good and growing. Well, we're screwed. We're screwed because we can't weather the slightest storm. If somebody comes in and breaks our window, we have no savings to repair the window and keep our life at the standard of living that we have. We are constantly chasing zero. And we are spinning on the hamster wheel, running as fast as we can to stay right where we are. And it is because of our economic and monetary policy. Um, and so few people see it. So few people even understand the impact that that has, what it means. Not even the people in government do. Like their children, their children just pressing buttons on a giant screen. They're idiots. And they don't have any skin in the game. What happens when a government program or a trillion dollar subsidy fails? Nothing. They just didn't, we didn't, we didn't have enough money this time. We'll do it. We'll do it with more money next time and it'll work this time. It's like, no, it's, gonna, it's just going to, it's just going to keep breaking things. Yeah, they are the source you, of the problem. Yeah. One thing you said in there was money is half of every transaction. And mm -hmm. so I think that really goes, it, it paints a big picture because as you go back through time, if you corrupt money 50 years ago and then half of every single transaction for 50 years starts to have a corrupted source, the, the money is not, 
money at its very first level is a communication tool. So mm-hmm. Phil Geiger talked about this on my last pod. The very first purpose of money is to communicate. And so if you break the communication layer 50 years ago, slowly over time, when every single transaction has a little bit broken communication all the way down, then we end up in the place that we are now where inflation starts to does not even creep anymore, starts to kick in the door and we start to see it in everyday lives and countries that are further down the chain start to have hyperinflation going on all around them. And that is how money, when the peg was broken to the gold standard, it slowly, but very, very clearly over time starts to break down everything in the way our system operates. And you talked about this earlier. Bitcoin really helps to start fix this because of its scarcity and its perfect supply schedule. Mm-hmm. Can you touch on how Bitcoin being the better hard money? In my last one, we already touched on how Bitcoin is better than gold because it's you know better at the five base properties than gold. Mm-hmm. Um, can you touch on how Bitcoin now we know it's the best hard money. Can you touch on how it can really bring us back to a clear economy um, once we do have a hard money introduced again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a there's a great analogy you brought up. Um, I think you said Phil uh, mentioned it was that you know money is a communication medium, um, and it's it's our way to communicate value, and it requires that we have skin in the game when we make monetary decisions that we pay the price, that we know the value of the savings that are backing that decision. We know the commitment we are making um, and what it's worth and that we can't get out of it arbitrarily. We can't print our way out of it because otherwise there's no skin in the game, right? Um, Otherwise, it's not actually communicating value. It's communicating political privilege or, you know, who my friends are uh, rather than actual actual value and in that context think of it like a language where the the definitions of the words are slowly changing over time so someone is saying that you know i love you and that at first means i i endear you greatly you are incredibly important to me um, you are essential to my life. I can't live without you. And that's slowly meaning coming to mean I resent you. I'm, I'm not a fan of you. Like, like the, that definition is being changed slowly over time. And so people who used to say these great things to each other are now being made enemies because they have different understandings of what the word means. That's that's very similar to the nature of what happens when you start to manipulate value. It's why it creates so much division in society because people see that these clearly there are groups of people who are massively benefiting from this because they're in this huge elite club where they all get free loans for no freaking reason. And then they loan it out to everybody else at 20% interest rates. And there's just this elite club of people who are astronomically wealthy off the backs of everybody else and feels like they're not working. It feels like it doesn't make any sense that like everything is misaligned. Bitcoin removes that ability to do that. The that's this referred to as the, it's kind of a simplification of the Cantillon effect of the people who are closer to the new money have an outsized impact on the state of the world 
and the ability to create value. They're able to buy things and all of our assets and all of our resources before the, the prices of those things are bid up by the newly created money because they are the first ones to touch it. Um, so the market doesn't know the definition has changed yet. And they're, they're able to consume all the resources under the old definition. And now the definition changes and they, uh, they have all the resources. They're the ones that were able to, you know, they had the tree that grew money while everybody else is having to work for money. Um, uh, so that creates an, a staggering amount of inequality in society. Bitcoin literally immunizes against this in the sense that no one can cheat it. No one has preferential access to the money. Uh, it's 100% predictable. There is absolutely no fluctuation whatsoever. Anytime there is a fluctuation in the amount of money that's being created in the Bitcoin system, which is incredibly limited and ever increasingly um, uh, heading towards zero new units, anytime it does increase or decrease in the amount of supply schedule, it adjusts. It adjusts to become harder or easier to create it so that it stays on the perfectly predictable schedule. I mean, we can relatively predict with almost, almost perfect certainty 10 years out how much Bitcoin is going to be created every day. We just know. Um, and it's inherent to running the Bitcoin software that that's it, period. Like there's no... Like you're just not running the Bitcoin software if if you're outside of that strict that strict schedule, and it completely removes that privilege within the financial system, within the monetary system. There are no monetary masters. There are simply monetary rules that everybody adheres to, and in doing so, it means that money is again simply a measure of other people's value, of other people's explicit trade-offs of other people's very deliberate decisions to, you know, not get the braces to fix their teeth uh, because, you know, their kid needs a bike replaced, you know, uh, like, like to, to make the decision for themselves and their family and their community to shape the world as their values uh, make it because they have produced the value for the world. They should get that. They should get that promise back. And, it means that money will again, and this is an incredibly long process. The, the, the process of monetization of a new good in the market takes an incredibly long amount of time. And the process is a crap ton of price appreciation because we're finding out that its supply cannot change as its value goes up. It continues to be, in fact, the beauty of Bitcoin is that the more its value goes up, the more secure it is as a money. Um, which is one of the most amazing things about the design of the system is that its own value is the source of its security. Um, so it explicitly gets more secure to be able to accommodate a higher value economy and to secure more value for more people. And ownership has no authority. Like in, uh, in our current monetary system, the only reason you own anything is because someone else says you do. Like you only own your house because the city council has your title records. Like for instance, like in Honduras or whatever, there's a massive amount of corruption of political uh, uh, politicians and bureaucrats and stuff who have access to the titles will literally just give their cronies and 
uh, other corrupt politicians or whatever, they will just literally erase the titles and make a new title for the property and put somebody else's name on it and then go kick the other person out. Like it's completely permission. It is explicit and, and they completely get away with it because what are they going to do? What are you going to take it to court? With well, courts just as corrupt, the judge is just as corrupt as everybody else. In fact, they're probably the one getting the house. Um, so uh, like it's only you only own it because the government, the the authority uh, that enforces it says that you do. Same with what's in your bank account. They only own it because the the reserve authority, the next financial authority and the next regulatory authority says they own it or they guarantee the whatever the nominal points are. And they only own it because the Federal Reserve has issued it and the Treasury says it exists. It's just authority all the way up. If anybody higher up the ladder revokes it, you own nothing. You own absolutely nothing. Bitcoin is a system of ownership completely outside of that. There's no authority at all. The authority is your answer, is your ability to validly sign with a cryptographic key, with a secret. And it doesn't matter if the president of the United States has the biggest army in the world and has an aircraft carrier, there's no amount of work or power that they can have that can fake that secret. And if the Bitcoin network is distributed to every single participant, if everybody else is enforcing the rules, there's nothing they can do. There's absolutely nothing they can do. Your ownership is explicit to the fact that everybody else is running the rules that says it requires your secret. As long as you keep that secret a secret, it's yours. doesn't matter if you're a 12-year-old kid in New Guinea. It doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States, you're a Russian czar, you're, you're a, a Pakistani woman who doesn't even have the right to read, um, to learn to read. doesn't matter who you are, where you are, your skin color, your race, your sex, your creed, whatever the hell it is. Bitcoin does not care. As long as you have the secret, you are the rightful owner. And it is an entirely separate system of ownership that has no politics, no biases, nothing outside of the explicit rules of Bitcoin. And that is a revolutionary thing in today's world. There is nothing like it at all. Um, and if that can stay decentralized and independent, I, it's, it's a breakthrough on the order of thousands of years. Like uh, there's not really not, it's a liberation of uh, the communication of value that really just mirrors kind of what happened with the printing press in the 1500s. Um, it's just such a revolutionary shift in how we think about value and how we think about ownership, how we enforce ownership. I, I think, I think we will be seeing the effects of this for a hundred years. Um, and, uh, and I think this will continue to iterate. And like, like I said, uh, I think it will dwarf what we've seen the internet do to society. Definitely. Um, one thing you touched on in that you said about how Bitcoin's higher price actually equates to a higher level of security. Mm -hmm. If you would just mind a really quick little tangent for people who don't know how that works uh, to touch on how, how exactly that does work. Okay. Um, uh, basic idea is that the, the new coins, like the new Bitcoin that is issued is by a strict schedule and it is being done uh, explicitly uh, to pay miners, as, as they were referred to, 
for securing Bitcoin's history. So uh, back to Nick Zabo's idea of unforgeable costliness. Bitcoin is secure and we know Bitcoin's past cannot be changed because there is an absolutely explicit amount of work, proof of work that is needed in order to change it. So in the same way that you know your money is safe in your vault because somebody has to get through the concrete and the steel in order to get to it, they have to do a massive amount of work. Digital proof of work is that around your ownership of Bitcoin. It cannot be contested because they have to do this massive amount of computational power in order to go back and edit that ownership. And so it's, it's like a digital force field. It's a force field of energy around the history of Bitcoin so that you know explicitly how much it costs for somebody to go back into that history and try to edit it. And this is part of the rules of Bitcoin that without redoing this proof of work, um, nobody can make changes or send Bitcoin into the future. Nobody can do anything in Bitcoin, like can change anything on the actual ledger uh, unless they have this proof of work and they have, you know, valid data, the, the keys, so to speak. Um, and uh, so as Bitcoin becomes more and more value, the payout to those miners, the, the fees that we pay in transactions, and then the amount of new coins issued, the value of those things goes up. And therefore, more people are willing to commit their hash power, their steel and concrete to securing the Bitcoin system. The vault gets bigger. The vault gets thicker because more people have their valuables inside of it. So as the value goes up, the vault gets more secure. And that's essentially what is happening. It's just the digital version of that. It's a cryptographic vault. It's an energy vault rather than uh, a physical vault. Yes, exactly. And one thing I just recently learned, and correct me if I get anything wrong on this, is also that when miners solve the block, and so they get the block reward, that block reward actually doesn't pay out until 100 more blocks are mined. Mm -hmm. And so it incentivizes them to continue mining. Because say they, they win block 1000, and they want to stop mining. Well, that's going to take their hash power offline. And it'll actually slow down the next 100 blocks. So it'll take longer for them to get to block 1100 in which they actually get paid out. But if they continue mining, the whole network will get to block 1100 faster. They might win another block reward in that time. And then they're incentivized again to stay on for another 100 blocks. So it's a pretty cool way that the system has this whirlpool effect to kind of keep them engaged and keep the miners online so that they can get paid and recognize their own labor. I, um, I just learned yeah, that the other a, day. Did you, did you, that, that, that was a beautiful moment. I remember when I first learned about that little, that little tidbit too, because it's such a beautiful and subtle way to basically keep the mechanism moving forward indefinitely and to keep the, any investment into Bitcoin security as a constant push to move things forward, to not be um, ethereal, to not, um, <laughs> no, no pun intended, um, not to uh, jump on the network and then jump off like, you know, frivolously or whatever, to stay invested and to stay securing the network because you want to keep pushing it another hundred blocks into the future in order to actually get rewarded 
for the work that you did in the past for yep. for your return. Um, no, nah, but there's so many of those just very little, very subtle things that Satoshi added to the design that when you really get into the nit and gritty, you're like, man, that's just that's amazing that he even he even put those little pieces together and uh, that exactly. those have gotten and so much cleaner over time. Completely agree. And one thing that's like special about it is at the end of the day, if a miner had to get off the network after they win block 1000, mm -hmm. they are not actively penalized for doing so they'll still get paid out once it gets to block 1100 but you know so they still have their own choice that they can make but they are incentivized by the network to stay on and secure the network so this is pretty cool little echo chamber in itself and so one thing that we talked about is money at its base layer is communication it is how mm -hmm. do you value your hat so that i can buy it from you and that we are communicating money. So you might value your hat at $500 or, you know, 50,000 Satoshis or whatever it may be. But I might personally only value your hat at 100 Satoshis or $10, whatever my value of that is. So we wouldn't see eye to eye and we wouldn't complete the transaction. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that the Bitcoin network over time will become a communication medium itself. How do we get to that? And what does that actually look like? Whew, that takes a long time. Um, yeah, so. we, we, we don't have to do the whole deep version, maybe just like the, a higher level, because that could be a total own podcast on its own. Gotcha. Yeah. So first, like when when a new money uh, is introduced into society, um, generally, like while it's being monetized, the increase in value uh, is typically so sharp that uh, you get something, particularly in a very soft money environment, like going back to the examples of when hard money is introduced in a soft money environment and all the times in history you get something referred to as uh gresham's law or like in the in the reverse same principle but in the reverse something called Thiers law and uh what what it means is essentially in a soft money environment hard money good sound money is essentially it essentially disappears from circulation because uh because the soft money that's still being used by society is decreasing in value and the hard money is increasing in value. So people want to keep it. People, people want to store that because that's the one that's actually storing wealth. And then they will rush to get rid of soft money. They will get rid of the one that's increasing in supply and that is losing its value over time. So during that phase you have, that's when the major asymmetric bet is available is that the hard money increases in value substantially and uh, the soft money's in comparison. And you know, this might take 50 years. Like, like this is a very, very long process. M money happens at incredibly huge timeframes. And that's why it's mostly so lost on people is that you can't really see it over your lifetime. You get so used to new prices that when, when you think, oh, it used to take, it used to cost $2 to go to the movies and it used to cost, 25 cent to get a coke and now it's two dollars and 50 cent to get a coke and it's 15 dollars to go to the movies it doesn't feel like that happened you know it happened over such a long time frame that it's just it's easy to adjust to the new standard and you just it's just invisible so our, our time frames just aren't that we're not made to relate and remember things uh for that long uh of a time and uh, so most of our monetary history and most of like our monetary framework is lost over a generation. 
And so when you have a trend that takes five generations to be realized, it's invisible to most people. It just happens and people don't see it. Um, uh, and uh, so in the context of like Bitcoin, the asset, right now we are seeing a hard monetary asset introduced in a global soft money environment. And because of that, its value is all over the place. It is incredibly volatile and it is skyrocketing very, very quickly. Um, and I think we're going to see another 10 to 20 years of this play out where it continues to be quote unquote hoarded. <laughs> uh, it's, it's saved, people hold it and it's precious to them and it goes up in value over time. Uh, but then we will see the next phase is Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. That's where we are starting to realize Bitcoin as a monetary network rather than merely an asset. And because this thing is programmable, because it's a protocol like TCP IP, you know, like the underlying internet itself, um, after you start to develop and you can build things on top of this, like the Lightning Network and these other payment networks and side chains and these other systems where you can do all of these fancy and programmable things with it, um, the desire to have Bitcoin the asset fuels the need to use Bitcoin the network um, because people start accepting and wanting and demanding people to pay them in Bitcoin. Like I myself am a decent example, little microcosm, and obviously I'm a psychotic Bitcoin enthusiast. So take that as it is. Um, but I want everybody to pay me in Bitcoin. If anybody pays me in fiat, it just gets turned into Bitcoin, period. Like that's just, that's just how it does. I, I, I want Bitcoin and I don't really care what happens to the price in the short term. I have very long-term timeframes and I'm planning I'm planning for that 10 to 20 years time frame. So what happens in the last two weeks is no big deal to me. Um, and uh, then the medium of exchange comes. And what I think will happen is that it will start to underpin a lot of what the banking system is doing. So uh, maybe a good analogy here is go back to like AT&T and what happened when we had closed communications networks. And then we switched over to TCP IP and we switched over to the internet is what slowly happened is, you know, before we had analog phones, um, the phone conversations were really hissy. If you were making a really long distance phone call, if you're calling from North Carolina to California, you know, like there was this, it was, it was a little bit delayed and you had, you know, 20 cent a minute long distance fees, right? It's because you had a closed uh, analog network and it was owned by AT&T. If you wanted to do anything on that network, you had to call AT&T. Like I couldn't provide a service to somebody on the AT&T network. I couldn't like hook a computer up to the end of my phone cord and then let somebody log into my phone or like provide voicemail to them. AT&T had to provide it. It was their network. And slowly, over like 20 years time, the back end, the infrastructure switched to the internet. It switched to digital packet switching. And suddenly AT&T was just a part of a larger network and suddenly all of the innovation went to the edges and the actual sending of data over the network was permissionless it was just it was just an open system and suddenly the hiss went away in our phone calls because my analog phone just went to a digital hub then shot across the internet to the other side of the country and then went to another analog went back to analog at the other end and connected to the other person and now Suddenly there's no long distance fees. I don't know why, 
I don't know. I don't know why that happened, but they just they just went away. And suddenly I can call Mexico. Suddenly I can call anybody in Europe and it doesn't cost anything different. Now we have unlimited, unlimited everything. <laughs> I think that all happened because what used to be permissioned owned infrastructure turned into an open infrastructure that everybody used collectively. It was an open medium, the internet. We're going to see that same thing happen to Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is going to invert the infrastructure. We're going, I'm going to use fiat on my end with my bank. And then my bank is going to settle with Bitcoin to another bank in Italy. And then that bank is going to use, uh, what's the Italian currency? Should have picked a different one. Oh, I'm brain farting right now. Anyway, Italy dollars. And, <laughs> um, uh, and that person is going to use it on their end. And nobody's going to care or wonder why. I mean, maybe they will. But it's not going to matter that that happened in a couple of minutes, that it was free, and that I could send money to you just as quickly as I can send it to Italy or Japan or China. doesn't really matter. They're using Bitcoin as a medium to settle their debts, to settle the value on the other end, because Bitcoin is fast, it's low cost. They're using the Lightning Network. I mean, that's what Strike and Nidig are doing. That is literally what they are doing. Um, that is their, this is their plan. And they, in no uncertain terms, say, we are going to destroy Western Union. We are, we're going to make remittances a thing of the past. The idea of paying a fee to go across an imaginary border is going to vanish. It doesn't, it won't exist anymore. We are already there. The technology is already there. The network is already possible. We literally just haven't built it out yet. We just don't, it's just the liquidity and the apps and the customer onboarding. That is it. That's the, that's the job. All we need to do is really get the word out there and build out the infrastructure for it. But the technology is present. Long distance fees on dollars and on money are already a thing of the past. We just haven't distributed it to everyone already. Um, and that's when Bitcoin becomes a medium of exchange. It will make fiat stop sucking. It will get rid of the three, day, three business day waits. Um, it will get rid of the remittance fees. It will get rid of the overseas um, uh, payments and fees and all that crap. And it will start to work better because it's using a global open monetary standard in order to settle that value. And then the last stage is when that as a medium of exchange and as an asset, it becomes so liquid. It becomes the default standard for value sent over the internet. And it becomes so robust and well-known and used by so many entrepreneurs and businesses and payment services and banks that it becomes the underlying value pin. And at some point, we just start to realizing that we stopped measuring things in the fiat and we started measuring the fiat in the amount of Bitcoin it took to settle. And then one day we will simply realize that it is a unit of account and we don't really know how we got there. In the same way that all of our phone calls will happen over the internet, but there wasn't like an explicit time in which we decided to all use the internet. It just slowly happened. Um, and those are the stages of money. If you look in history, like when a new money is introduced, that's it. The, the asset, the, the store of value, then the medium of exchange, and then finally the unit of account when it reaches full saturation and kind of equilibrium in the market. Yes, you nailed that. Thank you for the 
I mean, that was a brief rundown on how deep we could go. Um, <laughs> it is it is pretty exciting what what's going on in the space right now with like you you hit on the head strike. Uh, you talked about how the analog phone turned to the digital phone. We never mm -hmm. noticed the difference. We just started paying less in fees. Strike is already doing this today. You can send money from the United States to your Italy dollars, and uh, <laughs> they're settled. You you pay in U.S. dollars. Lyra? They turn Lyra. Ooh, that might yeah. That I think might, that's right. That's just, we'll we'll go with that. Yeah, we'll um, go with that. <laughs> and so you 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 pay in U.S. dollars. It converts to Bitcoin, sends to uh, Italy, and then converts back to Lyra or Italy dollars, and pays instantly for no fees, and no one knows the difference. And this yeah. is where we are going. And there will still be currencies for nations for the foreseeable future. But mm -hmm. what will happen is that the base layer Bitcoin will be what is driving them and what is backing them and what everyone really wants to hold. You don't want to spend the Bitcoin. You want to spend the U.S. dollar. And that is our philosophy right now. Yeah. We either don't hold the U.S. dollar or we that's what we spend um, if, if we have it. And yeah. it, it's a pretty cool and quick transition we're making like to, toward the Lightning Network. Can you talk a tiny bit of, I know you've probably got things to do, maybe like a couple more quick questions if, if you have time and talk very briefly about like the Lightning Network, how you're using that on your personal website. Um, I think that's a really exciting thing that you're doing and what, what you kind of see moving forward with that. Yeah, 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 certainly. Um, so the Lightning Network, hmm, probably the, my favorite way to explain it is uh, like TCP on the internet. Like when we first made the ethernet and the packet switching protocols for the underlying, like before the internet was even the internet, right? It was just a design. It was, it was just a way to organize information on computers so that they could talk to each other. Like the idea of being able to communicate to another computer just by having a cord between it was a big deal, right? Like we had to have a network where they could talk to each other. But the first iteration of it was what's called a broadcast network is that uh, you would basically flood out. So if there were 100 computers plugged into this network, everybody had cords running from each computer to each computer, um, is to send a message to you. Let's say you're one of these 100 participants, um, one out of uh, 99. And um, I want to send a message to you. What I do is I flood, I broadcast that message to everybody on the network with a header tag that says it's for you. Everybody gets that message and checks it, checks the tag on the digital packet and says, oh, it's not for me. And they send it on to the next person and delete it from their own store, um, from their own data. And then eventually we hope because it just keeps broadcasting and broadcasting until everybody has received the message that it got to you. You saw that it was for you. You didn't broadcast it again. And you accepted it, you read it, that's your packet. That's how the network used to work. That's how the fundamental design was. IP was built on top of it. And what that enabled was a way to organize and make sense of how the network was mapped out so that rather than having to flood a message to everybody, I could just send it on a path that went straight to you. And... I didn't, I mean, imagine if your phone had to get every text message in the world 
and then say, this one's not mine. 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 Oh, this one's for me. And it ha- that's what it was doing. Everybody would be under a constant, massive, global DDoS attack. The whole thing would collapse in seconds. Like it'd just be an absolute disaster. You have to have what's referred to as a unicast layer on top of it. Where when I send, when I connect to Google on my computer, and this is this is a fun if you're a super nerd like me, you can actually do this in uh, like your your command line or something or in your network utility. Uh, you can actually see your route to whatever you're connected to. So I can ping Google, I can send a message to Google, and I can see exactly the 13 computers that I had to go through: the one to my local node, the, my ISP, or well, first first my home router, then my ISP, then my local node, then my ISP, then the regional the regional node, and then some connecting router, and then the regional node on the other end, their ISP, their local router, and then to the computer that's sitting in the Google server. Like, like I can see the whole route and it shows me every one of them. I can even look up where they might be around the country, but nobody else got that message. The protocol is designed so that only the relevant computers are needed to bounce hop, hop, hop all the way to the destination. And that's the only reason the internet works. If we were still on a broadcast layer, the, the whole thing would, it would never, it would never work. We'd never have a, a device that could do anything. Lightning network is that for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a broadcast layer network. If anybody makes a transaction, you have to shout it to the whole Bitcoin universe, everybody who's running the Bitcoin software, and they all collect it, they validate it, make sure it's right, and all the miners put it into a block, and they stick it in the blockchain, and then they broadcast that back out to everybody else, and everybody broadcasts and broadcasts and broadcasts. Everybody keeps all the information for the whole thing. Lightning Network is a way to establish connections with explicit amounts of Bitcoin in it that you can keep updating and I connect to you, then you connect to Starbucks, and Starbucks connects to Target, and then Target connects to, you know, ISP in China, and China connects to uh, some some random person. And when I want to send a Bitcoin transaction, rather than broadcasting it to the whole Bitcoin network, I send it to you. You send it to Starbucks. Starbucks sends it to Target. Target sends it to China. China sends it to the customer. That's the, and I can send money to them uh, based on based on that route in the network. It's a way to use Bitcoin transactions to establish network connections rather than as a payment base. Because just like smartphones receiving every text in the world, it was never going to work like that. Um, so uh, Lightning Network, I think, is revolutionary in the same way that it actually makes Bitcoin the ownership and monetary layer scale to a payments layer, to an application layer. It is the web moment of the internet, in my opinion. I use it constantly. Um, I've been trying to build a lot of tools. Well, I, I don't build myself. I hire other people to build because they have the time and the expertise, and I am not going to learn to code. Um, I will stick with my little stupid scripting and stuff uh, when you know I need to check some signatures on an app I download. That's it. That's as far as I'll go these days. Um, but uh, like for instance, like somebody who... Uh, has a lightning wallet, can go to my website and vote. Like, <laughs> somebody walked by. How dare Doors. they? Um, <laughs> it's okay, Benny. Oh my goodness. So terrible. Um, so uh, uh, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, so lightning network. <laughs> All right, uh, so people can actually go up and vote on the website um, for which piece they want to read. It's a way to get like a little bit of feedback on like what the audience wants to listen to. Cause I get like recommendations and stuff a lot. 
Um, but I don't really know what people want to listen to. I just kind of read what I like, right? Um, so somebody can go up and like throw a hundred sats, like throw 10 cent or a penny or something on like, I really want to listen to Lynn Alden's new piece. I really want to listen to this piece on Bitcoin Magazine and they can, they can upvote it. Um, uh, we've also got a tool that I'm building. Uh, I'm building. I'm having someone else build for me. Um, uh, uh, Super Testnet is the guy's username. He's a, he's a beast. He's been just creating stuff like crazy. I mean, me and a couple of people are actually fighting over him uh, to send him sats so that, uh, to pay him so that he can build stuff for us. Uh, he's building one to log in with the website. Uh, so one of my major issues with the website and I'm where I've had to uh, get rid of comments and get rid of users completely on the website is because it's just nothing but spam. It's nothing but bots. Uh, it's just, it is an absolute disaster. It is a never ending mission to fight all of the garbage posts. Um, and so I just had to dis disable all of it. And, uh, but the beautiful thing is that now we can have it so that people can log in with a lightning wallet. So rather than needing a username and a password, um, and rather than letting all these bots go run through and just log into the website and post whatever they want, I can have it so somebody has to have a lightning wallet and they literally scan a QR code and they hit okay. It's, a, it's an empty invoice. It's like sending me a payment of zero, um, but it's proof that you own the keys without putting any of your funds at risk. And then you have a user immediately created based on that. You don't have to store, you store your Bitcoin keys and that's it. You don't ever have to have a password. I can't get hacked and leak your email or password. Such saves me a huge headache. Um, it's a massive thing for privacy because you can log in anonymously. You can put whatever account details you want. You can still customize it or whatever afterward if you like. I don't, you know, you can do whatever. It's your user. Um, but uh, I don't have to, I'm not a point of risk for you. You can log in to my account and pay me. You can upvote stuff and even receive stuff. I want, I want trying to have like little systems where uh, like the first 10 listeners to the show notes page or whatever, maybe gets a hundred sat payout. So everybody will rush to get to the website when I publish the thing so that they can get free sats. And, you know, I'm basically paying people directly for their attention rather than running ads or something on them. And, uh, and it's a way for me to cycle stuff through and build up excitement or, you know, activity, people to interact with stuff. Um, and I don't have to, none of it's like a risk. I'm not adding potential problems to users or, uh, like I said, I can't get hacked and nobody, else, nobody's stuff is at risk and they don't have to store 5,800 passwords for all the stupid websites that they sign up with. They have, they just keep signing and their keys are never exposed to anything. It's just on the one device that they create the wallet on. Um, I mean, there's so many things. Once you create a public and private key pair for an individual, and then you have money built into it. Um, the amount of things that you can then do from that are just limitless. And we just, I have like so many little ideas that I want to just like keep building, keep building, keep building. And any, any money that the, the podcast makes, we're going to turn right around and just put into open source development and try to make these little tools, try to make them as easy as possible, WordPress plugins, anything, uh, so that people can easy, easily download them and start to play with them. Uh, and I think this is where the the that slow build out and slow development of the lightning network will really start to kick um it, it will really start to accelerate and as these new tools are just one click install download blue wallet and use it download moon wallet or breeze and just
get some sats, start spending it. Um, I mean, I even have people who are uh, streaming sats to me on the Sphinx app. So people are paying like a penny a minute to listen to the podcast. And what I'm trying to do right now, we're testing it uh, as we speak. I've got somebody who is cutting all the ads and stuff out of the show. Um, I actually haven't told anybody this, so this is an announcement, um, <laughs> um, but we're cutting the ads out of the show and trying to make an RSS feed for anybody who streams sats so that they don't have to skip the ads. They have an ad-free feed that is exclusive to the people who have the, um, uh, have that, the ability to stream sats to me over lightning. And then I also talked with uh, Super Test, and I think we're going to have an ability to uh, make it so that there's a custom URL so that the RS RSS feed is hidden. And maybe if they don't want to stream sats, they can just pay 100 sats or 1,000 sats a month, like 50 cents a month or something like that. And they subscribe to it, and their URL will redirect to the feed, and they'll have the ad-free feed, and it will just shoot them another invoice automatically at the end of every month. And they keep paying, and they keep listening to the show. And if they don't want to, they just it converts right back to the ad version. So they can still keep listening, and everything, everything works normal. They can just literally just pay at the beginning of every month to have the ads go away. Um, so, I mean, just the, the, the potential here is limitless. Like, you have money-integrated into the internet and you don't have to ask anybody. You don't have to ask AT&T if you want to build this thing. You just go build it. You just go build it and then somebody installs it and then it runs. I can provide this service for two people even if only those two people ever want to use it. I can do that for two people. Like it's the internet of money. Man, uh, Adam back must be proud. You know, you're finding a way to get rid of, <laughs> get rid of spam bots in a, in a Bitcoin focused way. So kind of coming, <laughs> yeah, it's coming full circle for, you know, from him to Satoshi back, back around. So man, pretty awesome stuff. You're going to basically have to put super test net on a full-time salary for all the stuff that you want to do. I'm getting there. Um, <laughs> I want to, I want to, if I can afford it, I just, I'll just hire a couple of freaking lightning devs. Yeah. and uh just have them pumping stuff out i would love to that'd be great i would love to have just pay a page of a hundred freaking lightning tools and plugins and little things that you can install one click app whatever it is that anybody can just go to and be like this is sponsored by guy swan or whatever whatever the heck and and people can just use it all and i want to have it all integrated in bitcoin audible so i'll find out what works and what's stupid and gimmicky and <laughs> you know nobody cares about and just keep iterating we might have to bounce some ideas off of each other afterwards because uh, my mind's been all over that lately as well. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know anything how to do it, but, you know, there's just the possibilities are endless. It's going to be pretty incredible, the transitions that we see, you know, with basically we're going to see Netflix doing the same thing. You're going to just pay by yeah, lightning so. per, per minute streamed. It might not be Netflix, but somebody will and they will take over the industry in that way. It, well, what's so funny is that the with the way production has been and if you uh i'm not sure what you know about like kind of the copyright and film record label sort of industry and all the problems around like rights to stuff like rights to content is the reason we've resegmented back into all the individual streaming sites is because everything is still funded via like aggregate rights ownership 
Um, so it's led to this huge explosion in the variety of production companies like Netflix and uh, HBO Max. Like everybody's, you're essentially getting the the dream of everybody who used to be stuck getting cable TV, right? Everybody's like, why do I have to buy 250 channels to get the five that I want? Well, now everybody can get just the five that they want and uh, pay monthly, you know, $10 a piece or whatever it is um, to just have those five channels and they have on demand their entire catalog of selection. But it is still kind of a walled garden, right? It's still closed off. Content is only explicit on one or another. This actually opens up to the beginning of a new transition where we saw the transition from the aggregate content and scheduled, uh, you know, on, on the schedule, like massive broadcast cable system and broadcast TV system now to the on demand uh, uh, catered to a user recommendations, all uh, full catalog uh, content per production company. I think now we're going to start to see the next level, which is more likely the Uber of it, where they aggregate content and everybody pays directly to the producer based on their actual watching of the content. So somebody can produce something for a million dollars and then everybody can individually, just like, like you know, one driver on Uber or whatever can give people a hundred rides or a thousand rides and get paid a lot. And another person can just have one ride and get paid 10 bucks or whatever it is. Um, in that same way, like you don't get that specificity with something like Netflix. Like they just aggregate it all together um, and they pay for what they think is going to be popular. And then they pay less for what they think is not going to be popular. Um, but there's no direct payment from the consumer. So this will lead to the ability to have basically open, open platforms with anybody being able to publish content or minor, very minor curation um, and uh, uh, systems for this is what I value, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. And everybody can send funds directly to the content creator, directly to the rights holder, directly to the producers of the content. Um, and I think Lightning and Bitcoin are going to enable all sorts of fascinating I mean, that model, that model might be stupid in that, that explicit context, but that's the sort of thing that becomes possible for people to try out. And then we get to see where the headaches are, where the consumers just don't want to deal with this or trying to figure out what the price of this or that is, you know, um, and the market will iterate on this until uh, I think the, the barriers and the number of steps between the person consuming the content and the funds getting to the person producing the content they will continue to start falling away. Like they were just the, the things in between those will get let thinner and thinner and thinner until they are directly talking to each other. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing the beginning of that transition happen. And we've seen that transition over the last 40 years, but I think Bitcoin and uh, lightning network in particular will accelerate that a lot. Completely agree. And when you get back to your filmmaker days, you can make a Bitcoin documentary <laughs> and release it directly to the public and can stream you sats for watching. That's just, there's just so many exciting things in the, in the space. And man, we could talk for another three hours about I'm sure. pretty much any of this stuff. And I really appreciate your time. I got one final question for you today. Mm -hmm. All right. So assuming they know and they understand the internet, anybody dead or alive, if you could have dinner with them and basically explain what Bitcoin means to you and what it can mean to humanity, who would it be and why? Man, that is a tough one. Put you on the uh, spot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
let's say just off the top of my head, um, I just like to sit down with, uh, you know what, Dave Smith. You know, what, screw it. I want to. I've been wanting to get on Dave Smith's show for a long time, and I think I'm a huge fan of his show. And I uh, had a great time with Robbie the Fire, his co-host, um, uh, not too long ago on Robbie's show. And uh, there's a huge libertarian community that I think has kind of missed just how significant Bitcoin is. Um, and uh, just because that's been on my mind and I think he's he's just hilarious. I'm a huge fan of the show. I've been listening to his show for ages and I think he's missing a huge opportunity. I would love to sit down and just chat with him for two hours and uh, dump offload all of my uh all my bitcoin onto him or just let him uh ask questions so i'll, I'll say dave smith i'll say dave smith there you go you're calling out dave smith um have guy on the pod <laughs> he's gonna be a great host he'll teach you a lot you know i actually just did something similar in, in my mind so uh i just bought a node so that i can start putting my podcast onto breeze and sphinx chat nice nice because russell okung tweeted that unless you're able to stream your podcast for sats he's not going to come on anyone's show and so this Ooh, is my way so I like i'm it. going I to like be it. pushing to get russell on my show i know i got a couple hundred followers and he's a pretty big name in the space but i think he would have a lot to learn or he would have a lot to teach me and um i think a lot of people that you know are listening to my show would have a lot to learn from him so russell and dave smith if you guys are listening <laughs> We, we want you on our shows or we want to come on yours. Um, guy, get on Breeze, you. get on Breeze and Sphinx and I'll tweet that out. I'll nag him per for you. Perfect. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. As soon as I'm on, I'll let you know. Um, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being willing to come out here and help to teach a lot of people uh, or probably not that many people quite yet, but hopefully in the future, a lot of people. <laughs> It'll be a lot um, of people. One day, one day. Yeah, it so, will. Thank you, Guy. Uh, tell people where they can find you at. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can find me uh, at The Crypto Economy or Bitcoin Audible on Twitter. Um, probably the the easiest way to get to all of my content or the stuff that I do is actually just Guy Swan, S-W-A-N-N, uh, GuySwan.com. Uh, it's kind of, I've been using it uh, more recently as like my hub to connect to Bitcoin Audible and the other show, Shitcoin Insider and my YouTube stuff and everything like that. I'm probably going to use that a lot more. Um, but yeah, and there's 530 and counting uh, reads and probably 650 episodes with guys takes and conversations and chats with other people in the Bitcoin space. So if there is anything, any question you have about Bitcoin or anything you want to explore, we have probably covered it at some point on the show. Uh, you can feel free to search on BitcoinAudible.com in the library. Just type in what you're looking for and you may very well find it. Take a month, go listen to everything that guy has done. You probably couldn't get through it in a month even. Um, it, it is a pretty incredible wealth of knowledge that he has on there. Thank you for what you've done for the community. Thank you for being willing to come on my show. I appreciate your time yeah, man, today. Time. And I look, look forward to uh, having these fun conversations with you in the future. Yeah, man. You can be a Bitcoin Miami? Unfortunately, I'm not. Uh, Sad story. I know. I, I wish I could. Not really. Don't really have the funds for it. Um, I hear you. you know, I hear you. Stack the sats with, with yeah. the dip. So. Well, hit me up when you, uh, if you make it a BitBlock boom or Bitcoin 2022, whatever it is, hit me up. I'll, uh, I'll owe you a beer. We'll definitely make that happen, guy. I appreciate your time and I hope you have a good one. Yeah, man. You too. 
man, what an awesome episode today from Guy Swan. Guy, thank you so much for everything. Thank you for spending your time and your knowledge and to help us learn today. Thank you for also devoting your time for your show and to help teach everybody through the years. There's an absolute wealth of knowledge on today's pod. Uh, everything that we discussed is listed below in the show notes. Please check it out. Please check out Guy's links. Go give him a follow. He has content coming out regularly that you can't miss. He always releases the best new articles in an absolute timely manner. Please just go check him out. Follow him. You will learn a ton. If you have any direct questions that came up today, please feel free to reach out to me directly. Um, I would love to help out if I can. I would probably just point you to smarter people so I can point you in the right direction. Or I can bring them up on future podcasts. Our price is still a little bit lower, so we still have a wonderful opportunity to stack some sats during this dip. Please do yourself a favor and jump on Swan Bitcoin and Cash App. They are not sponsors, but they are two of the best places to buy Bitcoin. The links as well are in the show notes below. I really appreciate you giving your time to listen to my show and your support. It would mean a lot if you could leave a review and give me a five-star rating if you think I deserve it on Spotify and iTunes. That would be wonderful. Again, thank you for joining. Check out the show notes to find all the resources mentioned. And I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Take us away, bro.